For us, it was about creating a brand that people finally cared about in the back of the house kitchen. Hey, my name is Felix Tia, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn what is involved in doing a whole redesign of an e-commerce site, what you should focus on when improving your product page, and how to use your suppliers and manufacturers as a source of your marketing. Today, I'm joined by Chip Malt from Made In. Made In is a premium cookware brand creating inspiring tools for the modern cooking. It was started in 2017 and based out of Austin, Texas. Welcome, Chip. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, so you actually worked for another Shopify Masters podcast guest prior to starting Made In. So tell us about where you worked and what you did there. Yeah, um, so before I was at a company called Roan, which does high-end men's athletic apparel. Um, we were a Shopify Plus customer. Um, Started with that company uh, really early, was an employee number four or five there, um, and really helped build out their e-commerce brand, and um, we did that all through Shopify. Very cool. And then one of the things that you mentioned that you did over there was in uh, 2014, you helped lead the redesign of their uh, of their, their platform or I guess a website with the, with the Shopify partner development team. So tell us more about that. What was involved in a redesign? Yeah, I mean, it was kind of a classic tale of, you know, a young company starting to uh, kind of like kick off and, and gain traction and realize that, you know, the branding, the look and feel, the functionality, um, all that wasn't up to par with kind of the products we were selling. We were selling um, a, a price point that was one and a half, two times the price of Nike and the branding and look and feel of the website had to match that. Um, so about a year, probably a year and a half into the company, um, we went through with a Shopify partner. Um, it was Rocket Code at that time. Um, and I think they merged with a, an additional Shopify partner, but, um, we went through, I guess, kind of like a nuts and bolts, um, user experience update for the whole website. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when someone wants to do something like this, redesign their site to, to, uh, improve the user experience, elevate the brand to add a little bit more luxury. It sounds like the, 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 the what you guys are going for. What, what do you even begin? Like, how do you begin to think about what to work on, what to change first? Yeah. Usually when we think about redesigns and we take this into maiden as well now, we like to look at the funnel, the marketing funnel and go bottoms up. Um, so for us, like we really focused on the product pages first. You know, if we spent all that time and effort getting someone to the product page, um, we wanted to show off the product, the products, um, in the best possible light. So great imagery, um, great functional functionality, whether that's, um, kind of like zoom rollover or anything that that user would want to see once they get to that product page and have expressed interest in a certain product. Um, that really was the beginning focus. And then from there, kind of going up that funnel, so collection page um, and home page as well. And we obviously use um, things like Google Analytics to see where people are dropping off, um, you know, our drop off rates higher than they should be at certain parts of those funnel um, to either focus or make larger or smaller changes um, on the website. But generally, when we look at it, you know, we like to start um, kind of at that product centric uh, portion and then work up towards more of the brand pages, the home page, the about us page and, and so on. Got it. So start as close to the bottom of the funnel, in your case, the product page as, as much as possible, uh, because I'm assuming that has the highest impact on, on I guess, the, the sales and conversion rates for, for, the, for the business and for the, for the website. So based on what you've seen from other e-commerce stores, 
what is it about a product page that you see is usually maybe wrong or can be improved on the most if someone had to kind of focus on only one or two different things on the product page based on what you're kind of seeing in the ecosystem right now of other stores? What do you think people should probably focus their attention? Yeah, I mean, I think kind of outside of UI, UX and layout, I mean, obviously beautifully, beautiful imagery, um, photo and video are becoming more popular um, or video in particular um, on product pages are becoming more expected. Um, depending on the product you sell, you know, things like 360 views and really to give that user who's expressed an interest um, a real good idea of what they'll be purchasing because, you know, that is your, the, I guess the pro and con of a DTC model is you are speaking directly to that consumer. You do have that one to one relationship, but they don't have the ability to touch and feel that product. So, um, anything that you can do from kind of a photo video side or asset side to make them feel comfortable with, what they're going to get in the mail, you know, five days later um, is super important. And then, I mean, obviously there's some kind of low hanging fruit functionality things that we look at, like always having um, a call to action um, visible on the screen at any point of time. So whether they've decided to scroll down the page and look at reviews, whether they've scrolled down the page to look at kind of the nitty gritty details, descriptions, um, uh, maybe FAQ, like there's always that quick opportunity to just add to cart. Um, it's super important. Got it. And in your case, you recommend that call to action being to add to cart if you are on the product page. Yeah, generally, um, both from kind of a conversion standpoint as well as a functionality standpoint, you know, if someone's expressed interest in a very specific product, we want to cater to that product. So not send them um, to an about us page, not send them really anywhere else on the website, but um, continue to hone in, continue to hone in on that um, exact product. Got it. Okay, so so now that you you're working at Roan for a bit, and what gave you the itch to to venture out on your own? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's always there. I mean, I, I was a computer science major in college and started a few businesses um, with some of my roommates in college um, around like web design and and things like that. So um, you know, I think that itch has always been there, and ended up kind of going back to business school. I'm doing a lot of courses in the computer science department as well, and big data and big data analytics, and um, so I think. With that and like kind of the experience that I got at Roan, I had a really cool role at Roan um, when I was there. I was very cross-functional, um, really everything from demand forecasting and website analytics and behavioral analytics um, down to kind of demand uh, forecasting, sorry, and um, and the customer acquisition. So got a really good cross-section of the entire company. Um, so kind of with my past experience and um, and I guess knowledge in the web design experience, uh, web design domain. And then also with the experience I got at Roan, it was, uh, really encouraging to go off and branch out and do my own thing. And, um, I actually had a really good childhood buddy I grew up with since I was five, um, in Boston and he had spent uh, his life in the kitchen industry. And, you know, I think we were seeing at that time, this was 2015, 2016, how well Casper's were doing and Brooklyn's were doing and, um, all these home brands where the home was really becoming a place where people were starting to invest in, um, you know, there start the the old kind of incumbent brands were kind of fading out and these new brands were coming in and making people really excited about investing in pillows and sheets and the kitchen just wasn't touched. Um, and my childhood buddy, he is, he's been, um, or I guess his grandfather in 1929 started a business, um, outf outfitting and supplying high end restaurants, um, with kitchen supplies. And, um, you know, that was really the last vertical to fall from kind of a brand perspective. There was no one really doing anything in the kitchen space. So I called him up and said, Hey, like I kind of have this great experience, um, from both the web, um, web analytics side, plus the experience at Roan. Do you think we can create a brand? You have the product knowledge in this space, um, to speak to the new customer for people who want to outfit their kitchen, um, and feel attached to a brand in that space. And he was, 
from day one, just like, absolutely, this is a no-brainer. Got it. So the kitchen wasn't touched, like you mentioned. There was no direct-to-consumer brands that were really basically revolutionizing the way that people were buying kitchen products that were ready to invest in kitchen products. How did you know that this was going to be a business model that would apply well to, to the kitchen space, the ones that you were seeing with, like like you're saying, the sheets and pillows and mattresses? Like, how did you know that kitchens was a place to disrupt next? Yeah, I mean, for us, I think we saw this. There's two parts of that. One, we saw this huge behavioral divide in how kind of the modern, the modern consumer was behaving with respect to food. So, um, our age group, you know, the 30 year olds, um, they're going and they were spending so much time curating perfect recipes on, um, you know, all these great recipe websites. They were taking master classes taught by Thomas Keller. They were really investing in kind of cooking as a craft, not a chore. Um, they were going and they were spending 30 bucks on a grass fed steak at Whole Foods. They were really caring about organic this and organic that and putting all this thought and attention into kind of half the process. And then they would get home and they would cook it on something that was a hand me down, um, or scratch from 10 years before completely rusted out and kind of just ruined that last part of the process. Um, and really that, uh, is what resonated with a lot of people that we spoke with. We obviously did, um, interviews with customers and or potential customers beforehand. Um, ask them, you know, how they got their cookware. Do they even know who makes their cookware? And what we found was that the brand affinity in the space or really the brand awareness in this space was super low. So for us, it was a different challenge than we had at Roan. At Roan, you know, people always are in the market for a new workout short, um, a new fashion item, things like that. For us, it was about creating a brand that people finally cared about in the back of the house kitchen. Um, and that's what we realized. Mm, so you saw that in the in the landscape, in the the competitors out there, there was no true brand affinity, no brand awareness from potential customers of you know these products that already existed in this space. What what does that mean for for the kind of marketing that you have to do, especially you know like you're saying compared to a industry like Roan, where people are constantly caring about brands and caring about constantly on the lookout for you know premium products. What does that do about the way that you had to approach marketing when there is very little brand awareness for you know? your competitors yeah what we really did and what that meant for us was that dictated how how we went about creating the actual products and that's actually what drove the name made in so what we what we realized was the food is a place or sorry food is a place um or kind of a, a area of your life that there's a huge emotional attachment to so whether you're you know home for thanksgiving and gather around the table with your family or you're um recreating a grandma's recipe from you know, three generations ago, two, two generations ago, like food always has an emotional attachment. A lot of people, you know, you talk about the latest travel or vacation they took. And a lot of times all they talk about is the food that they ate. Um, and so what we wanted to do is we wanted to recreate that emotional attachment on the product side. Um, and so what that meant was creating and developing really authentic supply chains. So um, take our knife, for instance, our knife uh, is made by a fifth generation knife out of central France, this small town in central France. Um, they invented the modern chef knife to look and feel that Germany actually copied this town. Um, we went out there, we spent a week with her family, um, after kind of a back and forth of a year developing this knife and created a really, really awesome chef knife in a way that, um, is one of the few places in the world that still creates knives the authentic way. Um, so our goal with made in is that made in means that the products are made in the best places in the world with the best craftsmen in the world that they, that they can be. And our goal is that you have just as much of an emotional attachment to the product that you actually cook the food on as the food and food experience you have afterwards. 
Got it. So you you saw this emotional attachment people have with food, and especially their their travels with food, and you wanted to to develop a supply chain that allowed you to create stories that also attaches this emotional attachment to your products to places in the world. And you mentioned that this was one of your competitive advantages that being able to have to to be one of the the brands that has authentic sourcing from actual craftsmen from historical historic parts of the world. Now, when you are, I guess maybe we start with the sourcing. How did you begin to do that? That sounds like a, if you're one of the first people to do this, it sounds like lots of kind of trailblazing that's involved. How were you able to 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 go down the process of sourcing from 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 craftsmen? Yeah, I mean, I think there was two portions to that one. Um, again, my co-founder was third generation kitchen supply, so um, he had a lot of industry connections, and he's able to really speak and talk in a language that, um, you know, I think a, a supplier really appreciates. Like, he's very knowledgeable about metal. He's very, very knowledgeable, knowledgeable about what makes a pan really good versus mediocre versus bad. Um, you know, he came in with this really great industry knowledge, which helped us um, at least talk the talk when we got the opportunity to talk to manufacturers. But to be honest, it was a lot of ground and pound. I mean, we, um, you know, talked to maybe 50 manufacturers before we had two that were even a potential. Um, a lot of people said, Hey, like no one's going to even buy kitchen supplies online. Um, a lot of people said, you know, we are, we've been around, we've been making cookware and knives for 500 years. Like why should we take a bet on spending our resources on a startup that, uh, you know, you might fail in six months kind of thing. So it was a lot of convincing. Um, it was helpful that we had an industry tie through my co-founder. Um, but, you know, we were lucky to find partners who really believed in us, who um, and took a chance with us really when we were launching. Mm-hmm. So once you have the supply chain with the products made from historic parts of the world and, you know, the best places to make those kitchen supplies, how do you use that, that competitive advantage, that story in your actual marketing? Sure. So um, if you look at our website or a lot of our marketing materials, whether that's on Facebook or any of the promotional pieces um, that we put out on really any of our channels that we advertise on, the factories and the craftsmen have a large part of that story. So, um, again, not harping on the knives, but one of our best performing assets um, comes around uh, really like the knife maker talking about what makes a good knife uh, from a bad knife and all the hard work and effort and the people that put um, put their kind of names behind this product. So really from like a e-commerce and direct consumer perspective, like hopefully that gives the consumer at the end of the day, the knowledge and comfort that the product they're purchasing from anywhere from 89 to $155 um, is going to hold up is worth it. Um, and, you know, is, is really made to last. And so we, we uh, it's a requirement for us if we're launching into a major vertical, whether that's stainless clad pans, whether that's um, knives, carbon steel, that we're able to take a camera into the factory, show the production process, talk to people who are actually producing the products and will be in the future, um, and showcase that to our audience. Got it. Is, was there any pushback here with taking a camera into the factories to to kind of kind of show, I guess, what, what goes into making your product? Some places, but to be honest, not really. I mean, these are people that are absolutely. 100% proud of what they do and what they've been making. So I think more than that, they're actually really proud to show off what they've ma- spent their lives mastering. I mean, for our stainless steel clad pans, um, which are made in America right now, um, they are, uh, they pass through, I mean, they go through about six or seven people before they're finished. And each one of those people has been working at that factory for between 10 and 40 years. There's actually a father son combo that are working together at that factory and finish, um, most of our fry pans there. Um, that's their specialty. And so I think, you know, it's something that they spent their whole life 
absolutely mastering. And finally, um, you know, we're able to come in there and give them a voice, um, give them kind of their, their moment to shine. And, um, you know, we really appreciate all the stuff that they do, um, all the hard work they put in. So um, I think it's gratifying for both sides. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure if you had a script involved or anything, but what what is the prompt that you would give to a craftsman or someone that's in your supply chain to get them to tell the story of what goes into creating the product? Yeah, I mean, a lot of times it's their history. I mean, they've they we don't need to prompt them too much. It's um, for us, it's you know getting them to tell their story. You know, a lot of times uh, they've been working there for 40 years. We have one factory that was actually started in the uh, early 50s to create cookware. That was the intent, original pur- purpose of the cookware. Um, or sorry, of the of the factory, um, and it actually ended up getting shifted over to some war stuff in the late 40s, um, and then. Uh, actually never even made cookware. And by the time we approached them, you know, 50, 60 years later, asking them if they could help us create cookware, they were unbelievably excited. It was still family owned. Um, they were happy to get back to the roots, ha- happy to get back to the way that it was originally created. And so like a prompt wasn't even necessary. It was really um, just capturing their excitement and, and authentic um, experience creating the products. Mm-hmm. Did you hire, did you have to hire like an agency or a company to help create the videos or is it something that you did on your own? Uh, yeah, actually, interesting enough, our fifth hire was a full-time uh, videographer. And I think that's unique for a company our size. But, you know, again, kind of doubling down and, and betting on what we thought was an emotional attachment to a product and kind of a, a differentiator for our brand. Like, we wanted storytelling to be an a, important part of our brand. And so that, mean, that meant that we brought that in-house very quick, um, a lot quicker than I think most brands would at our stage. Um, and that was probably one of the best moves we made. It kept us nimble. Um, you know, we go on the road together, um, you know, three or four of us and we're able to capture, um, manufacturing videos, partnership videos with chefs, um, you know, instead of going through a lot of the back and forth and cost of agencies. Very cool. And how important do you find that is it to, to have this thing be video based? Can, can you tell like a similar kind of story through other mediums like text or is video th- that compelling? So for us, I think what's cool is really how these products are made. And, you know, we look at kind of a YouTube as a proxy and there's just millions of views for people Googling how to this and how to do that in terms of like how things are made. Um, and so I don't think, you know, text or pictures or GIFs or, or any of those kind of uh, me- other mediums would really tell the story that we're looking to other than video. Got it. Now, once you are able to create these video assets, where do they go? How do you actually use them like tactically in your marketing? Sure. So um, everything from the About Us page. So if you want to dive deeper into how our products are made, who's making them, et cetera, like those exist on the website. And that's something we'll continue to do. Um, We both do outbound marketing with that. So um, obviously, like a Facebook or Instagram, um, the factory stories play a large role. Um, we do cut downs for those onto Instagram stories and make sure to include those as part of our marketing mix. Um, cause we really want when people hear about made in and go in and click on our Instagram and, you know, that's kind of like the first window to what your brand stands for. We want to make sure that the factories always have a presence there. Um, and it's not just kind of like pretty food and, and things like that. It's really ingrained in these craftsmen. Got it. So this is this is really kind of the top of the funnel for, for a lot of us, kind of branding focus. Like, what's the next step that you want someone to take after seeing a video like this? Yeah, I mean, we generally send those factory videos in terms of like tactically um, right to either a product page, um, really deep link those straight to a product page that is from that factory. So there is a direct connection between um, kind of the maker of that into what they actually made, whether that's a collections page or a product page. Um, and 
we see that obviously work really well for us. You know, people then have a kind of awareness of the quality and effort that went into that and, the, and not to overuse the word, but the craft um, that was the craftsmanship that was created to make that product. And then it's all about exploring kind of the features of that. So um, for us, you know, a lot of times we found that, um, you know, people don't really understand how to use exact pieces of cookware. It's, you know, maybe they cook eggs at home and cook twice a week and, you know, they mainly use fry pans and maybe a stock pot for pasta. Um, you know, there's also 15 other cookware pieces out there. Um, so that's where kind of the website is there to further instruct, um, help people understand, you know, this may be a really great product, but also here's what it's used for. Right. And you also have, you know, speaking about the, the, the emphasis on video for you guys, you also have a whole section of your site that's all basically tutorials and instructions from world famous chefs. So tell us about the chefs that you have been able to collaborate with. Yeah, I mean, that was completely organic, to be honest. Um, and I think we actually struggle with trying to tell our consumers how we're not paying to work with those chefs. Like, I think people are so used to paid endorsements in our field that they assume that everyone that we feature on that site is from just like a contractual agreement. But what actually happened with that, which was super interesting, was um, a lot of these shows, chefs approached us because they heard about the manufacturing stories that we're talking about here. Um, you know, they said things like, you know, I've been I've been around and been uh for ten years have been turning down sponsorships from kind of the name brands because they didn't really stand for anything. And you know, I've been waiting for a company like you guys to come along and really stand for something. And so that brought a lot of inbound interest from chefs, starting with Tom Colicchio at the end of twenty eighteen. He was our first real chef ambassador. Um he invested in the company. Um and then uh, over the next year, you know, three or four more high-profile chefs invested in us. Um, Grant Ackett's and the Alinea Group, Nick Kikonis, um, one of the best restaurants in the country, invested. Brooke Williamson out of LA, top chef winner, um, absolutely awesome chef out there. She invested as well. Um, but then about 90 to 100 restaurants ended up coming in and buying. And um, with them, you know, we really like to bring them into the fold. We think, you know, we love to have one-to-one relationships with these chefs and um, make them kind of the, part of the mating community. And it was really like it all stemmed from really that focus on the authentic craftsmanship that ended up attracting these chefs who, at the end of the day, I mean, cooking is their craft. And so I think they appreciated the synergy between those two. Makes sense. Okay, so I want to take a little bit of a step back. So once you are able to have this kind of founding team with your partner, like what were the first steps to actually setting up the, the business? Was it sourcing first? You focus on marketing and branding first? Like what was the main focus early on? No, that's a good question. We actually uh, kind of struggled with that when we were starting the business, to be honest. Um, we ended up settling on not even touching website brand marketing until we figured out the supply chain. We felt like that was going to dictate the brand. So, um, you know, we talked to manufacturers all over the world and um, what we ended up, we wanted the brand and the look and feel to match the people we were working with, which, um, you know, we ended up, our first line was a stainless clad line out of the United States. Um, you know, I don't know if you, if you watch our videos, you know, it's not a perfectly high tech polished factory, um, that's like pristine and looks like a, a, you know, a doctor's office or something like that. It's really like kind of old school American manufacturing, um, nitty gritty, you know, people working hard, things like that. And we wanted that, um, effort to be kind of then go bubble up into the brand that we created. So, um, you know, when we talk about our brand, it's, you know, authentic, it's not hundred percent refined. Um, it's human, things like that. And so, you know, I think if we went the other way, if we started with a brand, we started with a website, we started marketing and then figured out the product, um, we would have had a mismatch there. That didn't really make sense. 
Yeah, I think there's something to be said about truly believing in your product too. You know, if you truly believe in your product, I think a lot of the marketing and the the genuine authenticity about the marketing certainly shines through. So once you did get the the the, the supply chain set up and then a website set up, where did the first sales come from? Yeah, besides our moms and dads, um, we actually were fortunate enough to have a pretty good press launch. Um, you know, again, we were we were a first mover in this space. There wasn't too many other brands doing it, really any brands doing it. Um, so it caught a lot of press's attention. And over the first you know year, um, it continued to just get press traction. And I think that was important. I mean, the PR was one of the first things we invested in. Um, we invested in that about six months ahead of launch so that we could kind of build hype and gift and seed editors and things that, you know, I had no idea what I was doing in that realm. Um, and so that's kind of been a thesis of ours or, or motto of ours. You know, if we have no idea what we're doing, like that should be something we either hire for or outsource. Um, and so that was a focus of ours pre-launch. Got it. Okay. So if you're, if you're looking to hire a PR agency, what do you look at? How do you determine if they're going to be a good fit for what you're trying to do or not? Yeah, for us, it was, there's two things that were important. One was that they had a, a knowledge of food or hospitality. I mean, we were working with, um, or ended up working with some of the best chefs in the country and we knew we were going to end up getting there. Um, so they had to have some knowledge or experience in the hospitality industry. And then the second thing in the CPG industry. So whether they're working with a company like Roan or another, um, I guess consumer good and can pitch for both editorial as well as things like gift guides, et cetera. Like those, those were the two most important things for us. Mm-hmm. And once you do have a PR agency or a consultant, like what's your involvement? Like how do you make sure that you are doing your part so that they can do their job? Yeah, we we always talk about that because I think people complain about not getting, and we do too, like not getting enough press. And then a lot of times you just have to look in, inwardly and inward and see if uh, I guess you're generating enough interesting stories. <laughs> and so uh, something we're cognizant of, I mean, whether that's refreshes of a product line or new launches or things that kind of keep the brand fresh. Um, but for us, I mean, we're constantly pitching and thinking of new ideas in terms of either the chef partnerships that you mentioned or, um, you know, there's some really interesting and authentic stories from the products that we work with and trying to tell those as well through press. Um, yeah, I think like Shinola and companies like that did a great job of, um, I guess, bringing awareness and and uh, I guess consumer interest to the people who are actually making products. And so they from a PR perspective, they paved the way um, for a lot of our stories. Mm. Do you find that the the kind of content, the kind of stories you have to tell changes depending on the level of awareness of your customer? Like someone's coming to your site and taking a look at the product videos and learning from the chefs. So I can imagine that certain videos, certain kind of content works better for them versus someone that's, you know, just browsing a publication somewhere and then seeing content of yours. Like what is the type of content that works best at the very, very top of the funnel? Yeah, very top of the funnel. I mean, from surveys we've done and, and kind of looking at the analytics behind our site, um, the manufacturing stories do very well from pure top of funnel, as well as some of the direct consumer kind of uh, messaging around, you know, direct to you, customer service, things that um, retailers really don't focus on and really about changing that buying experience. So I, mean, I think everyone or every consumer is, is pretty aware of kind of the terrible especially in the cooking and cookware industry, like the walking into a bed, bath and beyond and looking at a shelf of 9,000 things that you have no idea and getting kind of pitched by a salesperson like that buying experience stinks. So um, we really focus on, you know, really, I guess, streamlining the buying experience, talking about how that will benefit the consumer as well as um, the product uh, theory and philosophy. Mm-hmm. Do you guys have like brainstorming sessions or how do you, what is the process to come up with more stories to, to try to pitch or to get out into, into, uh, into PR? 
Yeah, we have two weekly meetings on, on that. Um, the first one internally and kind of talking more about the marketing funnel and the question you asked around that, um, a team meeting everyone from the kind of brand marketing side down towards the performance marketing team. Um, you know, I think the beginning portion of that is reviewing last week's um, efforts and kind of the analytics behind that, click-through rates, conversion rate, um, you know, CPAs, things like that, um, and figuring out what's working and what's not, and all the A-B tests we ran that following week, and then building up those. And then the second is um, a weekly meeting with the RPR agency, which, um, you know, it's also a two-way feedback set, section, like here's what's coming up, um, are people interested in this, and then they deliver feedback back on, you know, yes or no. <laughs> Got it. Okay. So you mentioned that you invest in PR six months ahead of launch, which is probably one of the first times I heard of someone being this kind of, uh, I guess, forward thinking about uh, getting PR ready for for a launch. What is the story that you tell before launch, even you know, before the product even exists for purchase? So from a PR perspective and kind of leading up to our launch, because uh, the, the first three months of that was getting the product and seeding it to editors and building relationships with them. So they understood the brand and the story and what we were going after. Um, for us, you know, we saw the brand evolve pretty heavily. I mean, out of the gates, a lot of people told kind of that pure direct to consumer story. Hey, this is a product that compete with all clad on a performance level, but cuts out the middleman and is half the price. Like some that story you've kind of heard over and over again, but this was really the first time that the food writers were writing about it. Um, and then from that, you know, kind of that brought the initial interest and in wave. Um, but for us, like we obviously think our brand is a lot deeper and more authentic than that. Um, so moved from pitching that story into um, kind of that more depth and awareness around um, the craftsman side of things. Hey, real quick, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. Got it. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about, or I should talk a lot about analytics because that's, I think, where you, you have the strongest area of expertise is around analytics. You spend a lot of time at Rowan doing this, and you mentioned that your day-to-day is spent around looking at the funnel, analyzing a lot of the metrics. So just want to share some of the things that you've been able to do. So you mentioned that, again, you're, you're responsible for the website analytics, behavior analytics, customer analytics, ad optimization, creative optimization, and again, that was at Rowan, and today you're doing a lot of the similar things. So let's talk about this kind of at a high level at first like what are some of the most important metrics or reports that you like to look at on a day-to-day basis yeah i mean and this is something that was a big learning curve for us for the first probably three to six months or or six months or so was um that cookware buyers behave completely different than my past experience at roan which was apparel and kind of more fashion which um you know as i mentioned earlier talking to you that you know fashion buyer could be a one-click buy. It could be something that you know someone's always in the market for, and they just you know it's Tuesday and they're bored at work and they you know see something a pretty shirt and they come out and buy it. Um, we do not see that behavior in cookware. We always say we talk about like our, our marketing meetings. Like we always say, people don't walk out of their house on a Tuesday really saying I need to buy a new fry pan. Um, it's a different full funnel marketing cycle and problem that we have. Um, that we solve. And so that means that we have to break down our marketing funnel a lot more granularly. Um, so, you know, that means like from a KPI perspective, you know, at the top of funnel, we're looking at bounce rate, we're looking at um, qualified traffic, um, a lot of metrics around that. Um, and then middle and down funnel, that's where we start to look more conversion focused. But um, it is a much more, I guess, segmented marketing approach and a much more full funnel marketing approach. And that's something we learned over the year. 
Okay, can you say more about that? Like, what is it different? What do you look at differently be, between a, a a product or a brand or industry where people are constantly shopping for the products, constantly on lookout, versus a a product where people may not be, even be aware yet that they have this particular problem that they need to solve? Yeah, so I can say one, it dictates the channels that you're super interested in investing in, right? It's uh, Facebook has gotten and Instagram have gotten so good at figuring out who's in the market for what product that it really acts almost as of severe competitor to Google SEM and search and things like that. It knows who's buying what and who's in the market for what. So, um, you know, I think for us that dictates both like how much effort we view those channels as more down funnel channels and how much money and effort we put into those. But what that means also is that we can go up funnel and not worry so much about conversion and expand our reach into other channels outside of kind of those traditional ones. Um, you know, we've obviously like podcasts and, um, TV we've tested and, um, and, and spent money behind because for us, you know, it's more about the awareness of that, at that stage. Like we're, we're more pushing up, up, up funnel and looking at awareness and, um, and things and then investing uh, kind of at the back end of the funnel as well. So it's, it's really like a, I don't know how to describe it, but it's, it's a different approach than we took with fashion where it was really easy to capture, um, kind of in one channel, a full funnel, um, approach or sorry, in mm-hmm. one channel, a, uh, full, kind of conversion cycle approach. Got it. So there's much, much longer sales cycles for for what you guys are, are selling. Now, so how do you measure something like awareness, especially if you are advertising on podcasts or TV? How do you know if it's working or not? Yeah, I mean, we look at everything from percentage of, of viewers who look at a review page or about us page or some sort of signal that they're interested in more about the brand than just um, kind of the homepage or, you know, things like bounce rate and stuff like that also go into it. But um, we look at a lot of path through the website. Um, so pages per visit, um, pages per user. Um, we've invested a lot more into kind of understanding those aspects of, um, you know, what is qualified traffic versus what is not. We're using some AI modeling that um, predicts kind of user behavior and how likely they are to convert based off of really up funnel activities. And those have been trained over kind of two years of data that we've gathered. But um, really for us, I think that is the exciting part is trying to figure out which of these actions um, that people are kind of that people are doing at the top of the funnel really correlate to what's happening at the bottom of the funnel. So whether that's, you know, watching one of our videos, which, you know, shows if they do that, it's a clear action that they're interested in the brand, whether that's looking at our about us page, visiting a factory page, watching chef tutorials, any of these things kind of dictate to us how interested they are in either cooking or in made in that help us kind of determine um, who's interested in the product at the end of the day. Got it. Okay, so when you do learn these, uh, learn more about your customers, learn about what kind of uh, behaviors or actions a, a visitor has taken up funnel by like watching your videos, which determines that they are highly qualified and more likely to purchase later. What is that? What kind of what kind of what do you do with that kind of data? Like, what kind of changes have you made to the website or changes to your marketing based on knowing the behavior of qualified traffic? Yeah. So I guess tactically, like two things, like. Speaking specifically about the, the watch video component, you know, that is something one, we invest in as a brand, but two, as you mentioned, is correlating to people being interested in the brand and end up converting. So making our videos a lot more prominent using, um, putting videos on, uh, product pages, which didn't exist before, um, putting videos in, uh, the factory pages on the homepage, um, on our website right now on the homepage, there's a carousel of all the chefs we work with and videos we've done with each one of those. 
Um, and we have some other exciting kind of like video based stuff that's coming out in the next year or so. So, um, to your point, like that has dictated a ton of what we're doing on the UI perspective. And obviously we test into, um, those changes and things like that. But, um, it's, it's hugely a looking at that analytics really drives what we do on kind of the UI and web perspective as well. Got it. So for someone out there that wants to be more data-driven with their decision-making but doesn't want to get overwhelmed, I think it's hard for you to tell us you know, what metrics to look at, but maybe what are some questions that you think someone out there that's a complete beginner that is looking to, again, be more data-driven in their decision-making, what kind of questions do you think they should ask themselves to determine what they should be tracking, what they should be looking at? So, so one of the questions we asked ourselves, and I think it's really important for anyone starting out or trying to get more data-driven or, or analytical is where to focus your time. And, you know, I think when you're internal at a brand, you know so much about every portion of your website that you're afraid to repeat yourself to put the same video on different pages. But if you actually dive in and just look at purely the path that people take through your website, and if you're dropping most people off on either a product page or a homepage from your advertising, or if you have a lot of organic search results that are going towards your homepage, You'll see that maybe 5%, 7% of your traffic goes to the About Us page. And, you know, when we started off, some of our highest converting videos, our highest value videos were living on that page that only seven of 100 people were getting to. And we were afraid to put that on our, our product pages as well or a collection page or something else like that. And that is where most of the traffic was going. So I think that the number one thing to look at is really like that behavioral flow through your website and making sure that your best assets get in front of the most people possible. Got it. So also not to worry about repeating yourself with the content. Is that what you're saying? Like not to be too, I guess, worried about having the same piece of content multiple places if that leads to keeping the customer in longer in your funnel? Yeah. And, and if you think that's core to your business value, because, you know, as consumers, you get 500 emails a day from brands. You get, you know, you probably see, 30 Instagram sponsored ads a day, like to assume that a user just because your kind of frequency count is going up and to assume that a user has seen that ad um, or that video or whatever you're trying to promote is um, is probably wrong. Right. I think the, the the thing I've heard is that you're much more likely to get annoyed by your own advertising than your customers are because you probably think that they're seeing the same thing every day, but just because you are surrounding yourselves by so much that you believe that they are also seeing as much as you are. And we think about our brand that same way too. I think it's something that we struggled with at Roan and we also struggle with at Made In is constantly feeling like we need to overhaul everything and do brand refreshes because, you know, the brand is stale. The brand is stale. And we've been looking at it for the last year and a half. But, you know, for us, 90 percent of our traffic, 85 percent of our traffic is new every day. They've never seen our brand before. Um, so, again, like figuring out where to spend your time, like you probably don't need to go through a brand overhaul when you're two years old. You need to be focused more on other things. Right. And you know, speaking of that, you mentioned that one of the biggest issues is that early on, people might focus too much on optimization. And you mentioned optimization matters at scale. What you should do early on is focus more on innovation. And instead of f- focusing on small A-B tests early on that, that don't move the needle, like things like changing a cu- button color, you mentioned you say that you should try and fail bigger and look look for kind of bigger jumps in, in innovation. So tell us more about this. What are some examples of an innovation versus and I guess an optimization? Your in your example is like a, a changing the color on a button. But what's an example of an innovation that you guys took? 
I'll give you an example more first of the negative, like the optimization thing I'm talking about in a negative connotation, which um, for us, like early on, you know, we were looking at a target CPA or a target ROAS in our advertising, and we were working with an agency and what they really wanted to do was test headline copy, test um, really small iterations of description copy, um, you know, product on white versus product on red versus product on um, this or that. And while those all drove very incremental gains or learnings, um, you know, it, it wasn't a meaningful impact in the brand. Um, what we did early on was we made much larger bets. So um, let's think about like going out and investing in a brand video all about the founders and the storyline um, and why we created the product and really humanizing the brand, test that whole vertical versus um, pure craftsmanship story versus pure product stories. Um, you know, that cost a little bit more upfront to do because we had to produce three videos. It took a little bit more time, um, a couple months to get those out of the gate and into the world. But instead of driving incremental value, the winners of those, which are the craftsman story, the humanization story, drove kind of double digit gains, um, which would have taken us a lot longer to get there if we were incrementally testing. Um, and so for us, like, you know, that was the bets we were going for first was figuring out really which major portions of the brand were going to drive business impact and not some of the smaller things that I think people get caught up on. Mm, and I think even knowing this and hearing your advice, people still might switch to premature optimization, I guess optimization too too early. How do you know then when you should make this switch and focus from these big bets into the, the smaller optimizations? Yeah, for us, I mean, I think we had um, or we had very clear business goals up front and we were clear from the optimizations that we were doing that it wasn't going to either get there or really surpass the business goals that we we're looking for from an efficiency standpoint, so like a marketing spend standpoint or a CPA stem standpoint or return on ad spend standpoint. Like we could have kind of nickel and dimed our way there, but it would have taken a lot longer. So in that aspect or when you're faced with that situation, um, you know, obviously it's like, Hey, let's blow this thing up and let's try a lot bigger bets to see if we can make stepwise jumps. Um, also like, you know, the thing we struggle with, especially the way marketing channels work, Right now is that, you know, everything's based off lookalike audiences. Everything's based off of similar traffic, um, and kind of this algorithmic, um, more or less like trading of, of marketing. And so, you know, maybe those first 500 customers that you get aren't actually the next 10,000 customers you get in a sense. Like their early adopters may not be the mass adopters. So, um, for us, it was also, you know, going farther and wider and spreading messages bigger, which, um, incremental testing necessarily wouldn't have gotten us there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, speaking of ads, you also mentioned that a lot of times you spend your your days on optimizing ads. So, like, what does it mean to you to when you are sitting down and your goal is to optimize the ads themselves? What does that mean to you? Like, what do you focus on doing? Yeah, so we're focused on really every one of our KPIs on each part of the channel. So, going starting at the top of funnel and looking at engagement rates, bounce rates, um, click through rates, dollar per visitor, um, all those things. Um, and making sure, you know, people are interested in those ads that they haven't faded, um, in terms of, uh, engagement. So, you know, they're not reaching the same people. They're not getting boring. They're still telling the brand messaging. Um, and then moving down the funnel, uh, getting more conversion focused. So are these ads doing what they're supposed to? Are people adding to cart? Are people, um, initiating checkout? Are people going from initiate checkout to, um, final purchase and things like that? So each part of the funnel, it's different. Um, but, each morning we go through kind of each one of those 
uh, each one of those parts of the funnel, um, look at every single ad that and how it's performing over the last day um, and two weeks and a uh, full month and measure those against each other and then see if we need to refresh creative. Mm, and these are mostly like Facebook ads or where are you spending most of your, your dollars? Uh, which platforms? Yeah, so we're in podcast, Facebook, Instagram, um, and TV right now. So um, not too many. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think probably what's most familiar with a lot of listeners is probably around like Facebook ads. What's your strategy there? What's your testing strategy whenever you want to start a, a new campaign? Like how should it be set up? Yeah, so we do light A-B testing. Um, we obviously, or I guess like the way Facebook A-B tests um, on their channel, like we do some of that, but we also just do a lot of putting things out in the world and seeing the response um, into existing campaigns or ad sets. Um, for us, you know, I think we'd rather fail quick and often. And, um, you know, Facebook is a great platform to do that because you can jack up spend and figure out if an ad's going to work in an hour or not. Um, so for us, you know, we come up with a bunch of iterations on ideas and products um, and messaging and creative lines and throw those really all into the uh, into the world together and see which ones rise and which ones fall. And really our motto is to kill ads quick because um, anything we can save on understanding if an ad will trend towards where we need it to be long-term, we can invest that back into testing a new concept. Mm, so if you want to take this approach of failing as quickly as possible and learning if an ad's going to work or not, you mentioned that you, you throw an ad out there and you jack up the spend and you could probably find it within a day, within an hour maybe. So what are you, are you just launching like $100 ad, $100 against like one ad or something? Or like what does this look like tactically if you need to to get this, these answers as quickly as possible? Yeah, we look at it on an impression basis. So, um, you know, has that ad reached uh, 5,000, 10,000 impressions? And is it trending towards where we've seen other ads at that stage go? I mean, we have in our minds, we have hero ads that are really kind of long term, the best things we've seen. And we understand the life cycle of where those start, how those optimize over time, et cetera. And so now at this stage, having looked at it really every day, we're able to identify um, pretty quickly if that looks like it's going to be on a path based off of, you know, it's reached this many people, like it should be already trending this direction. Guys, so you look for the trends of, of, a, of a new ad against the, the, the kind of trajectory of, of these hero, these kind of control ads that have been running and that have been beating all the other tests that you've been running. So what makes these, these hero ads, these controls, uh, I, I guess, what do you, how do you look at them to consider them a success? And what metric are you looking at? Yeah, um, so return on ad spend is kind of our, our, bread and butter in terms of uh, KPI. I mean, if we're selling, they, the hard part about what we do is we sell everything from a $799 kit down to a $59 pan. So looking at CPA is a little bit of a misnomer because, you know, if we're getting $100 CPAs in that $59 pan, it's uh, we're going to be out of business. If we get $100 CPAs in our $700 kit, um, it's a great business. So for us, return on ad spend is really the most important metric we look at. Mm-hmm. Now, looking at your best performing ads, and what attributes of the ad, the imagery or the the text, the copy on it, what is it about these ads that have caused it to perform so well that you will continue to kind of duplicate into all the other tests that that you're doing? Like, what is it about those best performing ads that 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 you believe makes them best performing? Yeah, I think some of it is. Uh, I think the most important thing, obviously, is the actual creative. So the photo or video or carousel or um, whatever you're doing from that perspective, that's what is everyone's first 
focal point. You know, they're not even going to stop and look at the headline or the description if the creative, um, creative meaning the, the actual asset photo video isn't appealing or interesting or thumb stopping. Um, so that's the most important thing that we look at. Got it. And you mentioned that you've been able to drop your your CPAs to uh, by almost 100% year over year as you learn more about who your customer is, what they like. So tell us more about that. Like, what did you what did you learn about who your customers are and what what they like over the last you know couple of years? Yeah, for us, I mean, we do have a higher price point product. So um, you know, a sixty nine dollar, fifty nine dollar fry, fry pan, although it's kind of half the price of all clad, is still an expensive pan for most people out there. So um, I think the most interesting thing we've looked at and we've overlaid our audience onto everything from Oracle data, which, um, you know, takes it and segments it and gives everyone um, kind of a, a unique profile and um, demographic information and things like that down to the stuff that Google and Facebook spit out to us as well. Um, the interesting thing about cooking is it really a- appeals to everyone, which uh, is both good and bad because that means we can go into channels that have wider reach and are less pinpointed. So TV, radio, things like that, where you may not know who's on the other end, although it's, you know, mostly people above 30 who have disposable income or something like that. Um, That's been the biggest learning. And so for us, it's been less about, you know, telling a very pinpointed uh, message to a, you know, male who is 33, who lives in a coastal area, something like that, which, you know, for a lot of brands like that is their customer. For us, it's really, how can cooking improve your life? Um, how is our cookware better? And like, why should you pay attention to cooking in general? Makes sense. Okay. So you also mentioned that you've been able to increase the number of returning customers by 50% year over year over the last year by focusing on features like the drag along products, retention optimizer, and cross sells and upsells. Let's talk about that. What is it that you do about these drag along products that allows you to increase the number of returning customers? Yeah, so something we learned at Roan as well, I mean, there's always kind of a hero product that, um, you know, may drive a ton of your sales, but there's also a hero product that is the first product in consumer's first basket that leads to the highest repeat purchase rate. And that is a super interesting product to look for. Um, and sorry, that, that kind of comes out confusing, but basically like what product is in the person's first purchase that ends up leading towards the most repeat purchase rate and honing in on that product, basically the penetration product for your brand that brings the most customers back. Um, and for us, you know, that was a carbon steel frying pan um, or, or a saucepan, which, you know, aren't really the hero products of ours, but somehow we're a penetration product into um, people falling in love with the brand and coming back and buying more. Um, and so for us, like then, you know, that dictates marketing efforts. If people purchase one of those products, um, if we lead with those products, you know, it determines our lifecycle marketing um, in a lot of ways. And then in terms of kind of the retention optimizer um, and other tactics you mentioned there, you know, those are super interesting to look at because as an e-commerce business, you know, a lot of your money is made in, in the LTV standpoint, like what people do after the conversion. Um, and for us, like anything we can derive, any more value we can derive from second, third, fourth, fifth purchases, um, you know, that's money that we can then spend to go acquire more com- uh, customers and increase increase the velocity of our business growth. Um, and so we're lucky enough now to have kind of our early cohorts repeating up to a 60 or 70 percent, um, which, you know, was kind of way higher than we thought. And I think pays, um, I guess, uh, is it gets a tap to all that efforts we're doing on the retention side. 
That's very interesting. I've never heard of this phrase before, but you basically talked about this penetration product into your brand so that they basically buy one product, now they're bought into kind of the ecosystem of all the other products that you might be selling. So once you know this, well, first of all, how do you know this? What, what, what is the, the tools that you use, the reporting that you use? Like what do you do to determine what is that, that, that product that will most likely get, get you a customer that is going to be returning? Yeah, the kind of like easy way to look at a lot of that stuff are the drag along products. There's a feature in Shopify um, that uh, is in, I believe, the analytics and it's called basket analysis or something like that. Like that is a really good way to see at least like basket makeup and see what products are buying are being bought with other products. And um, that is a good, I guess, like first step into looking at, hey, if people didn't actually buy these together, people only bought that first one then they probably want that second product at some point later, um, or there's a high likelihood that they will. Um, for us, we take all of our uh, exports of our raw Shopify data, we put that into a Redshift database and run um, SQL queries off that to figure this stuff out. Got it. Now, when you do know that what this drag along product is, like, how, what do you do with that information? Like, what do you are you changing your marketing? Are you like remarketing them with 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 like that particular product for for existing customers? Like, how are you using this information? Yeah, so that um, dictates obviously the kind of initial prospecting and brand awareness awareness product from the marketing standpoint. So the things that are going on Facebook ads, um, things that are going in our email welcome flows, kind of those first touch points. And then the drag along products come in the retargeting or cross sales or upsells or post purchase flows or anything in the kind of um, after purchase segments. Got it. Then you mentioned that you also use uh, some other tools like the retention optimizer. Tell us about how you use that. Yeah, retention optimizer is cool. It's um, you know it's just a really good graphical way to see how your customers are aging. So um, obviously, your most valuable customers are a function of how many purchases, how many purchases they've made, how much they've spent with you, and how long since they've purchased. And that retention optimizer tool graphically shows that to you really easily and well, and lets you know um, kind of how those cohorts are aging. Aging, and if you see um, you know a lot of your best customers, um, you know, trending towards, hey, they've spent a thousand bucks with you and they bought three times, but they haven't bought with you in three to six months. And you have a product that people do buy often, like that means you're probably not spending enough time on nurturing your customers that you already have. Um, so maybe you need to invest more in email marketing, maybe you need to invest more in retargeting, like something like that. But um, I think it's, it's both slightly tactical, but also um, is a really good visual way to see how your full funnel marketing is performing. Mm-hmm. What other tools or apps do you use to help you you run a bit the business or make decisions for the business? Yeah, we use Looker on a BI as a BI tool. It's um, a little bit more of a, a heavy lift in, lift in terms of implementation, but um, that's super important for us to be able to visualize um, everything from revenues down to basket analysis down to um, channel analytics as well as um, marketing performance that all comes through uh, the BI tool looker. Um, we use segment, which is um, really a kind of an interface that sits on top of Redshift and extracts all of our data um, from multiple channels and pushes it downstream into things like the Redshift, which ends up going to looker. So a lot of like the data structure tools um, are super important to us. And we have, we've invested a lot in data structure. Um, and then obviously email platforms, um, we use BlueShift, um, which is a ESP and uh, artificial intelligence tool um, to analyze both kind of uh, behavioral flow through the website as well as um, put out our email communications. 
Awesome. So madeincookware.com is a website. What would you say is the most important metric that you would like to spend all your days, all your time focused on over the next few months? Return on ad spend. It's the number one thing everyone looks at. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Chip. Awesome. Thanks, Felix. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify. Shopify.